Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. It's Lon Seibin. It's time once again for your weekly wrap-up. We've got a whole bunch of stuff to cover today, and you can find the full index down below in the video description. So let's jump into it. Before we begin, I want to thank our newest supporters on the channel. During last week's premiere of the wrap-up, Logi KGR made a super chat contribution. I want to thank Logi for that. Uh, we're not premiering the wrap-up this week, but usually every Monday at 7 p.m., I will be live in the chat room as this video goes out to everyone for the first time. I really enjoy those Monday night chats and look forward to hopefully doing it again next week. And then we also have some new supporters here on the channel. We had an anonymous gold level contributor, so I want to thank uh, whoever that is for their contribution. And Josiah Guernsey gave via the donor box page. So I want to thank everyone who contributed this week, everyone who's been contributing on an ongoing basis, and everyone who watches on a regular basis too, because all of those things equal channel growth. So now let's take a look at the week in review. On the Extras channel, we unboxed the Acer Chromebook 315 that we reviewed last week, and we unboxed the new ThinkPad X1 Carbon Gen 7 that we'll be getting to a little later this week. Uh, That is a more premium laptop, the ThinkPad, but it's good to look at those every once in a while, so stay tuned for more on those items. And then on the main channel, we had a very productive week with four reviews. Uh, We looked at the Panasonic 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray player that just came out recently. It's a premium player, but does a very nice job with up-conversion if you have a lot of older movies on Blu-ray or DVD. Uh, We also looked at a color laser printer from HP that is among the most compact I have ever seen, and it adds multifunction capabilities too. Uh, What I wasn't aware of is that this is actually a Samsung product, or Samsung is selling a version that HP made for them, because there is another version of this thing out there that looks identical uh, with a Samsung brand on it. Uh, We also looked at the Acer Chromebook 315, which we unboxed on the Extras channel. Not a bad deal for what it is. And my favorite review of the week was the Terra Onion flash cartridge for the Sega Genesis and the Analog Mega SG. Uh, This cartridge is a flash cartridge like we've seen before, but it also simulates the Sega CD through an FPGA that's built into the cart. So you can actually boot up your Sega CD games without the actual hardware. And we tested it on a Model 2 Genesis and on the Mega SG. It works great. Uh, One of my favorite things of the year so far because I'm a huge Sega nerd and I'm going to talk more about why these things, although expensive, are valuable to folks like me who are really uh, enthusiasts of the past. And we'll get into that topic in just a second. And now it's time for some things in the news that caught my eye. And we've been following a story that's been developing over the last couple of weeks about how most of the major voice assistants were using third-party contractors to validate the quality of the recordings. In other words, uh, your Google Home or your Siri device would be recording uh, your request and then taking that recording and sending it to another company to review what happened with that transaction of data. And that means that those third-party contractors could listen in. 
And one of the contractors for Google leaked a bunch of recordings to the press and they were able to go out and find the people that made the recordings. And some of those recordings were inadvertent. They shouldn't have happened, uh, but the Google Home in this case thought it heard the trigger word and started recording the ambient sound. Uh, now we're hearing a bit more about the extent of what the Apple contractors were doing. Uh, in Ireland, a contractor was listening to uh, 1,000 Siri recordings per shift. And I think this is per worker per shift, if that gives you an idea of the scale here. Uh, now, everyone that worked at that Ireland contractor is now out of work because Apple, after this news broke, uh, decided to terminate the program. Uh, but the damage, of course, is done. And I think there's probably a lot of recordings that are sitting around out there. And now we've got a lot of disgruntled employees that might want to start sharing more information with people like the folks did with those Google recordings a little bit earlier. So who knows where this is going, but uh, read the fine print on your terms of service because there's very broad language in these things that allows these companies to do pretty much anything they want with the recordings that are made from these devices. This bad press didn't change the privacy policy, folks. It's just uh, basically going away for a little while until they can figure out a better way to do it. But nonetheless, these always listening devices are reporting home and who knows who's going to hear what's going on in your house. And DeepMind, a company out of London that was uh, doing AI research, uh, placed its co-founder on indefinite leave uh, DeepMind is now owned by Google, and this announcement came out on a Friday afternoon. Uh, in the PR world, it's called the Friday Night News Dump. When you've got bad news, you release it late in the afternoon on Friday and hope that nobody reports on it. But of course, uh, this story is getting out because apparently within the AI world, uh, the co-founder here by the name of Mustafa Suleiman is a big deal. And there's some speculation, according to the observer here, that this leave may be in relation to some medical records that DeepMind acquired, apparently illegally. Uh, a hospital in London had illegally turned over 1.6 million patient records to DeepMind, and they've been trying to train their AI to predict diseases based on photographs and other information and they're trying to do it in a way that can detect disease earlier, for example. But there are rules you have to follow, especially when it comes to patient data and releasing uh, private information about patients. We have laws like this here in the United States as well. Uh, we don't know that's why the leave is occurring here, but this investigation was ongoing and it might be the reason why they uh, decided to do that Friday night news dump. Now, my pick of the week this week is coming up earlier because... Uh, I actually just started listening to a podcast produced by DeepMind. It's called the DeepMind Podcast, and they've been diving into some of the work that they've been doing at the company. In fact, this podcast just came out a week or two ago, and I've been really uh, intrigued by it because it's giving you a sense as to how AI works, how they train it. Uh, right now, the podcast doesn't seem to be covering any of the larger ethical concerns uh, namely around patient privacy, of course, but also what happens when the AI gets out of control. Uh, they have AIs that are doing physical things. They're actually picking up objects and learning how to throw and catch balls, for example. Uh, they're doing a lot of just data uh, kinds of tasks where they're trying to predict disease, for example, and other things as well. They've even trained their AI to play video games. And what's been scary in listening to this podcast is just how good the AI gets at achieving its goals. So for example, they were talking about how they taught the AI to play Tetris and the reward they were giving to the AI for playing the game well uh, was based on not losing the game. 
And the AI figured out that if it paused the game, it would never lose. And it came to that conclusion after doing all this different trial and error. And it's kind of scary because it really is a single focus that these AIs develop in the course of learning how to play the game, uh, that it would think about some way to get around some of the limitations, perhaps, of the game. And you can't lose the game if you put it on pause indefinitely. It just was kind of scary to think about uh, how it came to that conclusion without any human intervention. In fact, the AIs are teaching themselves how to play the games as well. Uh, they've made a lot of progress on this research. And although the podcast makes it out to be this is all great and wonderful, uh, I'm feeling a little uneasy listening to some of the things that they're doing there. I'm hoping that future episodes, because it's sponsored by uh, DeepMind, will focus on some of the ethical concerns and some of the safety issues, perhaps, that might come out later when we start attaching these AI agents to physical machines. Uh, so stay tuned on this one, but it's definitely a good listen if you are interested in this topic. And YouTube is finally going after a copyright troll, but only one of them. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation reminds us about some of the flaws of the DMCA and why it takes a multiple stack of felonies to get these platforms to take action against people abusing the DMCA. Now, what happened in this particular case was that uh, the person would file the false takedown claim against the creator. The troll would then go to the creator and say, hey, if you want your channel back, uh, pay us some money and we'll make this all go away. I think some people probably did that, uh, but others said, no way, I have a right to this content. It's mine, not yours. And they filed a DMCA counterclaim. Now, the process in the DMCA is that you get a takedown notice. Uh, the platform has to execute that notice because they have to be removed from this process. It's the dispute between the uh, owner of the content and the person who's alleged to be uh, violating that uh, ownership. And then what happens is that the person who's getting the complaint can counterclaim, but they have to provide their street address in the course of that counterclaim so that if the dispute were to continue into court, uh, the copyright holder knows where to send the lawsuit documents to. Well, what this troll was doing, in addition to extorting money and filing false claims, was then swatting the people that were filing counterclaims because they were getting their home address from the DMCA counterclaim document that requires a street address to be provided to the one making the complaint. And this, of course, puts lives at risk and another felony to stack up here. So you've got a number of felonies going on in this case, which is why YouTube finally decided to file a lawsuit. And the EFF's article here is saying, hey, why aren't they doing it just for the claim itself? Because if you make a false claim, it's actually a federal crime here in the U.S. So if you check out the uh, YouTube form here that you fill out when you file a copyright notice, you can see here that you are filing this under penalty of perjury. And there's a specific section of the act that says you are liable uh, for damages civilly, but there's also a criminal element here, a perjury <laughs> element, if you are filing these false takedowns and nobody is enforcing this stuff. And certainly small creators don't have the resources to go after every one of these false takedowns that are made. And the EFF is saying that these platforms should do more. And I agree they should be doing more when there are apparent and very evident uh, examples of false claims happening. And it shouldn't rise to the level of swatting and uh, downright fraudulent activity to bring legal action against people that are abusing this system. 
And we got more information on Disney Plus last week, including its release date of November 12th for the U.S. and a few other countries. But we also learned that at the moment, at least, uh, the Amazon Fire TV is not going to be supported. Uh, This story in Multichannel digs into that topic a little bit more. Uh, They did get an off-the-record quote from somebody at Disney who said it would be misleading to indicate that a deal won't be carved out with Amazon before November 12th. Uh, The article says that Amazon claims to have 34 million Fire TV users out there, so that's a significant number. Of course, Fire TV is also built into a number of televisions as well. And this is kind of a repeat of the big war between Google and Amazon, where YouTube wasn't on the Amazon devices up until a couple of weeks ago. I would love to know what goes on behind the scenes with these kinds of negotiations and how much it costs for Disney Plus or Netflix or anyone else to get their app onto their app store. There must be a a big amount of money involved here. Uh, And that's probably the tension going on right now between Disney and Amazon. And Bezos probably feels like he's in the driver's seat with this. It just drives me crazy, though, because as consumers, it's really frustrating to have a device that can fully support playing back video from Disney Plus or any provider. But all the behind the scenes machinations between the owners of these companies makes it more difficult for us to get everything in one spot. So we'll have to see how this develops. But right now, it looks like if you are a Fire TV user, uh, there is no agreement yet as to when you'll be able to get Disney Plus on your device. Now, you all know I'm a big fan of the analog retro game clone consoles. They've got two right now that you can buy, uh, a Super Nintendo called the Super NT and a Sega Genesis Mega Drive they call the Mega SG. They work with your original cartridges and controllers, but they plug into your HD television and look beautiful, very low lag. It's just an awesome experience. If you are into old games, no better way to do it uh, than with one of these. And it looks like they've got... Two more consoles in the works. One is called the Analog 8, which I suspect might be a rebranding of their original NT Mini, which cost a lot of money. I think they're probably making a less expensive version of it. And given the 8 here, I suspect that it will support multiple consoles like the NT Mini did as well. So stay tuned for that. Uh, The other one is really exciting called the Analog Pocket. And according to their registration here, it is for a handheld game unit. And this could likely be kind of a Game Gear slash Game Boy portable device. I'm really excited to see what this might be about. Uh, They've not only done great work on their internal hardware and circuitry, but their overall industrial design has been very nice too. So I'm really eager to see what they're cooking up. Uh, We'll probably find out soon enough. Usually you get to the trademark registration kind of late in the development process. So once we see some hardware out there, we'll talk about it. I will pre-order it. And then these things usually come out around the springtime. So hopefully spring of 2020, uh, we will have some of these uh, new things to try out. And I'm very excited about that. And now it's time for a Q&A from you, the viewers. And on a related note to our last topic, I wanted to bring up some comments I got on my review of this rather expensive flash cartridge for the Sega Genesis. Uh, When you combine this uh, with this, the Mega SG, you're looking at about $450 to replicate the old Sega Genesis and its games back there. No better way to do it, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people will agree with me on that statement. Uh, But it is very true that you can get a similar, but not as good of an experience, using an NVIDIA Shield and emulators Uh, without having to shell out so much in cost. I don't disagree with those statements at all, but I think, especially in the case of the Shield or the Pi, 
uh, the FPGA route is better. And it's better for a big reason, which is input lag. There's a bunch of other reasons too, which I'll get into in a second, but I do think that uh, FPGA, based on how it is working through hardware, uh, is able to dramatically reduce the length of time it takes between the, the button push here on the controller and action taking place on screen. It takes most of the device out of that input lag issue and puts it mostly on the television. In the case of the Shield, there's a lot of input lag, especially on emulation, uh, that I noticed quite a bit. And it wasn't as evident to me until I got in my first FPGA-based console that I tested, which was the Retro USB AVS. Uh, that's an NES FPGA console. And I noticed immediately I was playing better. And I think what's happened to me, at least, is that I grew up with the NES when it was new. I played it on my television. We had zero input lag because it was all just analog connections from one thing to the next. And you develop a muscle memory from that. And as a kid, you know, you're playing for hours. You're really developing that muscle memory. When you come back to the game and there's 50 or 80 milliseconds more of input lag than you were used to, it impacts your performance. And it's very hard to do better in the game in the future here on all this modern equipment. I started playing those games just a lot better. And I noticed it on the analog consoles as well when I went to those. Another thing that I really like about the analog consoles is that when you put the cartridge in, whether it's this one or the real ones, it just works. There's no menu to jump through. I don't have to download anything or configure anything. I push the button, the game comes on, and I can start playing with the same controller I played as a kid. And there's some real value to that. I've been advising a lot of my uh, wife's friends to look at these things as gifts for their husbands because they all grew up around me. Uh, we all played the same games as kids, and this would be a great gift to give to somebody to really let them take all their old games that they have in their closet and pop them in something modern that will give them the best experience on the television without having to jump through a lot of hoops. And I don't want to take anything away from those of you who emulate. I still emulate a bunch of stuff too, and I think if you uh, built up a great emulation library... Uh, and you've got it working for you, I'm totally cool with that. I have nothing against people emulating, but I do think this FPGA movement uh, is going to do a lot to preserve the hardware in addition to the software, because what they're doing inside of these chips is replicating all the same logic paths that uh, the original processors did. And given the fact that we have a very massively parallel chip inside of these consoles, they can work like they used to. And in the case of the Sega Genesis, you had a lot of different chips working together to bring that game to life. You had the Z80 processor, the 68000 processor, graphics chips, and everything else. Uh, this can all work exactly like it did before. Uh, and I've heard from some folks that if you were to take the design uh, that you're using inside of that FPGA and print it on silicon, uh, you could pretty much replicate the hardware physically in addition to this virtual replication that's going on inside of these consoles. It's a very complicated thing. I would never even know where to start designing my own FPGA core, for example, but it's really good, and you should definitely give it a shot. If the analog consoles are out of reach, the uh, Mr. Project is something definitely to take a look at. I've done a few videos on that. Uh, it's a really, I think it's just a really important thing to preserve this hardware, both the arcade stuff, the consoles, and the computers. And this is really a great way to get it done. And the uh, enjoyment for the users like me is great because you get just a little bit more accuracy than what you might see out of an emulator uh, with far less input lag. And all of that stuff is why I don't mind paying more for that experience. 
It may not be for you. That's cool. If things are working, I'm totally cool with that. And I'll still cover uh, emulation here on the channel because it's important to me as well. But this has just been a new direction for something that I've been following for many years. And I love new and exciting things. And FPGA really has me excited because there's just so many great developments coming out of it. And I'm happy to support that community with my bucks. And these next two questions came in from my 4K Blu-ray player review. Uh, Jeff here is wondering why these players are so expensive. Uh, Surely the physical hardware doesn't even come close to justifying the price. I think he is right about that, uh, given that there are decent 4K Blu-ray players that cost a bit less. And Cena here is wondering whether or not we'll even see any more physical media happening, given how many uh, player manufacturers have left the market. I think there still is a market for it, but it's going to look more like Laserdisc did in the 90s. I had a Laserdisc player. I had a home theater receiver. I spent a lot of money back then on it because I liked that experience of the big sound and the crisp image quality. Uh, Back then, the only way to get a letterboxed movie usually was to buy the Laserdisc version of it. And the movies were expensive too, about $40 back then. Uh, That's close to $70 now when you adjust for inflation. And some of the movies cost more than that. Uh, But it was the best way to experience the movies. Uh, Enthusiasts wanted these laser discs. They paid top dollar for the discs and the equipment to play them. Uh, They kept changing the audio format. So we went from Dolby surround sound to Dolby digital. You had to upgrade your player and your receiver for that. Uh, And people were happy to do it because it enhanced that home theater experience. And I don't think those enthusiasts are going away. In fact, I think there's more coming on board every day. But most consumers are going to stream. I have no doubt about that because it's going to be good enough. Uh, But for a lot of enthusiasts, they want the best and they'll pay for the best. And in the case of 4K Blu-ray, you get a much higher bit rate. You can push more data uh, locally through that player. In some cases, the movies can run at 100 megabits per second with HEVC compression. They look wonderful. Uh, The sound is equally wonderful because you have lossless audio. You've got the Atmos sound now. Things just are amazing on these discs and much better than streaming. Uh, And I think there will still be a market for that over time, but I do expect it to get more expensive. Less players uh, being out in the marketplace means they will be more expensive because they're going to be less consumers for them. And the movies will likely cost a little bit more too, but I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And don't forget, a lot of people are in areas where they don't have sufficient broadband for even 1080p playback. So I do think the movies on disc will still have a place Uh, But I do think it will go mostly streaming in the future, which will drive up cost for us enthusiasts. Now, the captain wrote in on my Mega SD review, uh, asking me to talk a little bit more about the legalities of owning games that you emulate, uh, because there is, as he says, a potential for a piracy issue. And we often get these uh, questions and comments on these products, and I always like to talk about it, especially in the context of this particular device, which plays back Sega CD games. And the Sega CD has some great games that were not appreciated at the time. And this great resurgence of retro nostalgia has brought us a lot of great YouTube channels that went out and found games that none of us had ever heard of before and showed us how great they were. And that developed a lot of demand for those games in the process. And the Sega CD is really a great example of this. There are two games that are worth quite a bit of money. Uh, One is called KO Flying Squadron, and the other one is called Snatcher from Konami. And these games are very rare and very expensive, especially when they are complete in box. Uh, Price charting here is saying that 
uh, Snatcher Loose. Just the disc will get you $350. And if we look down here, you can see KO Flying Squadron is doing about $343, about the same loose as uh, Snatcher is selling for, but it's selling for a whopping $1,144 complete in box. You can also see the trend of Sega CD value here over time. Again, because people are starting to appreciate the fact that there was really good games on this platform, especially as it was nearing the end. Uh, Snatcher in particular is very renowned, and as such, it is uh, growing in value. Uh, So you can see a few things that sold on eBay over the last couple of weeks. There was one copy that sold for $455. Another one went for $550. And this one, a whopping $700 because it included the light gun as well. Uh, Guess how much money Konami made from all these sales? Nada. Zip. Zero. So while you are legally owning the game, the developer is not benefiting from that sale at all. And I don't want to say you may as well just pirate the game because we don't want to encourage that. But nonetheless, they're not offering a venue for us or even an avenue uh, for us to give them any money at all to compensate them for this great game that so many of us want to play in 2019. And there's got to be a way to make this better. Uh, If we go back in time, uh, it looks like Konami didn't make any money on this game at all on the Sega CD. Uh, This website called Junker HQ interviewed a guy named Jeremy Blostein, who translated Snatcher uh, into English for the Sega CD release. And he says the game only sold a couple of thousand units at most in the U.S. Um, He said it really was embarrassing, and he was really sad that it failed as bad as it did, given how good of a game it was. So Konami may have even lost money on this, yet their game now is selling for $700 a copy. Now, about a year ago on this channel, I tried to get a viral campaign started called the Retro ROM Challenge, complete with a hashtag. Unfortunately, it didn't go anywhere, uh, but it's still something that I feel very strongly about, that these developers, especially for games like Snatcher, should give us a way to be able to legally purchase the game as a ROM file or an ISO file in this case. Uh, Most developers are afraid of that. Uh, because they feel like this is going to just lead to more piracy, but the games are already out there and easily accessible, so you may as well try to develop some way to get some money for it, and I think this is something that would be relatively easy for these studios to implement, and I think it would benefit everybody. It would benefit them by getting money for a game they lost money on 25 years ago. It would benefit us because we can eliminate some of these legal questions surrounding the hobby of playing games on original hardware or on some of these FPGA replications or even in emulation. And I think it could be a win-win for everybody. Uh, And there are some examples of companies that are doing this, sort of. One is Sega. And if you were to go on Steam and download the Sega Mega Drive and Genesis Classics, uh, you will get all of the ROM files for these games that will be available to you. Uh, About a year ago, we did this. We grabbed a ROM file from that collection and booted it up on original hardware, I believe, or at least put it into an emulator, and it worked fine across all these different platforms that I tried it on. Uh, So that's one way to get ROMs legally, and this is probably the only example I can think of of a ROM file from a major developer actually being sold online, even though it's kind of masked inside of a Steam download. Uh, Good Old Games, or now called GOG.com, actually got its start by distributing old DOS games legally to people. I've bought a bunch of them. This is my library here of a few games that I've purchased. And this was a great way to get these games because they're DRM-free, 
and you can boot them up on an old PC if you wanted to, or you can run them in a DOSBox container that comes with this package that you download. It's great. I was even able to get some of the MT32 sound to work on some of these old DOS games because you're getting the actual game that shipped out to customers back in the 90s. So here is what I am thinking about for this year's attempt at the Retro ROM Challenge. Uh, I would like to build my own GOG for ROMs, and I'm willing to put some time, effort, and a little bit of money into this, but I can't do it alone. I don't think this will ever be a business that will make a lot of money. Uh, GOG, of course, went from good old games to GOG and is now essentially a Steam competitor because there's only so much money in this old stuff. But there is a community out there that I think could really benefit from a legal means of acquiring some of these games, and the developers will benefit too. Uh, Maybe Konami might finally make some money in the U.S. from Snatcher, for example. Uh, But I need some help, so I'm not able to do this by myself. We need lawyers uh, who can negotiate licenses. Uh, We need to have a website developed that can sell these ROMs. There's a bunch of outreach that has to be done. And I have no juice in this industry, so I need somebody with some juice who agrees with me that this is something we need to do. Uh, Let me know. Email me at lon at lon.tv. Maybe we'll put together a little group to explore this idea a little bit and see if it's worth doing. I don't know if it's possible. We can't get every game, of course, but I think it's something that needs to be done to help eliminate some of these issues of piracy in the community. Now, short of creating a whole online store, there might be an easier way for developers to take our money. And let me show you what I was thinking about uh, this approach. Uh, So Kevin McLeod here makes music that he offers YouTube creators and anyone else for that matter for free to use in their productions. Uh, This is a screenshot from the YouTube music library that gives you instructions as to how to properly uh, give credit to Kevin if you are using his music for free. And it's working out quite well for Kevin. He's turned it into a living. How? By the honor system. Uh, Because if you want to use his music and don't want to have to give him a Creative Commons attribution you can buy a license from him and he will then grant you a license that you can use on that song and put it into anything you want, maybe get a higher quality version of it. And it's worked out great for the community because we get access to this great music that we can use for free in many cases. But if you really want to reward him for the time that he put in, you can tip him a couple of bucks. And he's been, again, making a living doing this because it's not just creators like me that are using his music, but also big studios and others with deeper pockets that are giving him money as well for the use of his music. They don't have to, but they're doing it because they want to recognize the work that goes into it. And I think in particular in the retro community, uh, there is this spirit of supporting the people that are contributing to the community. Uh, So a lot of retro creators out there have really strong Patreon subscriber bases, for example. And I think that same spirit could apply if these developers had some way for us to compensate them. Maybe a little tip jar on their website or something where we can honor their prior work. Because even buying this used game doesn't reward the developer. You get a legal copy of it, of course, if I buy this game on eBay. But the developer who wrote that software and spent a lot of time making it work for that original console uh, saw that revenue one time and then never again throughout each transaction. And I think it'd be great for them to maybe just give us a means to just tip them a couple of bucks and then we don't have to worry about the licensing or who owns what or where. If somebody wrote a game 30 or so years ago and we can identify that person as the one who wrote it, be great to just say, hey, I'm playing your game right now in 2019 on my flash cartridge. Here's five, ten bucks for uh, what you did for us back then. Thank you. And I think that might be a way to uh, really start to develop some way that we can offer developers our thanks for 
uh, the wonderful games that they created for all of us. And in my Q&A for you this week, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. It often generates some very lively discussions about how to make all this stuff work. Uh, Really where I would like to see the discussion go is how do we compensate developers for games that you simply cannot get in any other format? Uh, What's the best process to take here? Is my idea of a tip jar that these developers could set up a crazy one or you think that might work? I don't know. Let me know down in the comment stream. And if you're interested in trying to build a ROM store, I'm all ears. Let's just give it a shot and see what happens. It might be a fun little extension of the hobby. Uh, Last question here is just a house cleaning item. Uh, Lone Tech is wondering, is YouTube deleting comments randomly now? He says he replied to a comment about phone clips for large phones here, but now he can't see the comment uh, and he can't reply to his own comment or something. And what I've been seeing lately on YouTube's comment stream is that uh, it is taking a lot of comments and putting them into my hold folder. And I'm getting in there a couple times a day, but depending on how busy I am, so I don't often uh, clear them out sometimes very quickly. And if you put a link in at all, it immediately goes into that. And I'm not sure, but I think sometimes the whole thread may find itself stuck into that bucket as well. And again, I try to get to those as quickly as I can, but it will do that. The big frustration for me is that anytime somebody references me in a comment because my name on YouTube is lon.tv, it immediately thinks you're posting a link and throws it into that hold pile. And then it's been getting very aggressive about uh, spam as well. So there's often a chance that uh, you're in that tab and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, So don't get too angry yet at me or YouTube. Uh, However, I will tell you that I do delete comments that are inappropriate. I think people that are making arguments that involve a lot of vulgarity and personal attacks are not welcome in the community. So there are times where I will actually go in and delete comments. I'm also very weary of external links because I don't know where you might be sending somebody off to. So I'm very careful about that. And of course, I also have to deal with people posting affiliate links in my comment stream as well. So there's things that I will remove from time to time. Uh, But most of the time, it's YouTube doing it, uh, but not removing them, yet holding them for my review. I'm going to try to get more people online to moderate these comments. That might help a little bit. Uh, But if your comment is made and then is immediately gone, it's because YouTube grabbed it and stuck it in one of those two folders, and we'll try to get to those quicker in the future. So this week on the channel, we've got a couple of fun things planned. This is kind of a neat little product that came in the other day from Andinit. It is a phone grip with a built-in wireless charger, so you can do video and photo shooting with it. And it's got a detachable shutter, so you can set it up on a tripod and then take the button with you, uh, so you can get a cool selfie with your friends. It's a pretty neat little thing, one of those unique objects that we don't often see, so it's going to be a fun little look at that. Uh, I spent a lot of time last week with the Raspberry Pi 4, so I'm going to give you my initial thoughts on it. Uh, The review I'm going to do initially is going to focus mostly on its computing features because a lot of the other stuff that people use Pis for is not fully baked out yet. Um, So emulation isn't quite there. The home theater stuff isn't quite there. So we're going to just look at the computing tasks and uh, try to see how it performs as a basic computer and then get to the other topics uh, once those open source projects get caught up and have their official Pi 4 releases. And I also hope to get to the ThinkPad X1 Carbon as well, a very nice and lightweight machine from Lenovo, and you can see my unboxing of that on the Extras channel right now. Now, if you want to support the channel, you can. You can go to lon.tv support to make a monthly or a one-time contribution to the channel. Uh, we also have the YouTube membership thing going as well. I have two tiers on that one, the $1 and $5 tiers. 
uh, just because YouTube takes a lot out of that transaction, but what they take at a dollar and five dollars is close to what uh, the other platforms take given the credit card processing fees. And what this gets you is you get some badges that you can put on your chats and whatnot. Um, it's not my preferred thing, but if you are uh, looking to do YouTube memberships, I certainly support those. And I should also let you know that all of the money that comes in from Super Chats and from uh, Patreon and from the Donor Box and all the other things that we're doing, including memberships, uh, all of those go to payroll. We have two part-timers here that uh, do a lot of work behind the scenes to make everything happen around here, and those funds go to them. Uh, it doesn't cover all of that cost, but it covers a good chunk of it. And I just want you all to know that I'm not buying myself you know, fancy toys with it. We're actually putting people to work here, and that is what those funds are used for. And we also have our ongoing relationship with Plex, where if you sign up for a free Plex account, no credit card required, we get a small commission for that. We get a larger commission if you sign up for a Plex Pass or gift it to somebody else. It's my favorite media player. We'll have a Plex video coming up this week as well. We also have other channels you can find me on. My extras channel is at lon.tv slash extras, where we've got unboxings and supplementary content. Uh, the podcast is an audio version of this show that you can listen to every week. It goes up around uh, Thursday or Friday each week, so you can listen to it on your commute. We also have the Snippets channel at lon.tv slash snippets, which takes portions of this show that you can share more easily. And hopefully you can share that Retro ROM Challenge video when we post it up there a little bit later, because that would be good to get around to uh, folks to see some ideas around how to make it all work. And then we have my live stream archive at lon.tv slash live streams, where you can watch all of my prior live stream events that I've done. And some of them are kind of fun. We actually did a few on these FPGA-based devices. So if you want to learn more and see them in action, uh, that might be a fun way to do that. Uh, click the bell if you like what I do, so you can get notified every time something happens here on the channel. And we also have some other ways you can engage with us. My email list is at lon.tv slash email. I'll be sending you some info on my uh, EFA trip through that shortly. Uh, we also have the Facebook page at lon.tv slash Facebook. We put a lot of the unboxings up there. Uh, we have the Facebook group, which has been a great and lively place. We have over 700 people there already, so you can join as well. Uh, just be sure to fill out the little survey that we have you do when you first go in there. If you don't answer the questions, you don't get in because there are millions of, of spammers trying to get into these groups, and I, I decline about a dozen a day. Uh, so you do need to answer those questions so I can make sure you are real and we'll let you right in and you can join the community there. And then we have my store at lon.tv slash store where I sell previously reviewed items for low prices, uh, one-off items because it's just the one that I reviewed. You can get an alert every time I add something to the store at lon.tv slash store alert. I've got a couple of things I do need to get listed on there before the IFA trip. So hopefully I'll get to that this week and I will email you through that list uh, when those items are available. And that'll do it for this week's weekly wrap-up. I want to thank you all for your continued support of the channel. Keep those questions and comments coming. I greatly appreciate all the feedback that I get. And we will be back again a little later in the week with more product reviews and, of course, another wrap-up next week. Until next time, this is Lon Sybin. Thanks for watching. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters, the Four Guys with Quarters podcast, Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mike Talbert, Brian Parker, and Kalyan Kumar. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. 
Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more. And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.